Hi, I'm Tom Luna. I'm a former school board member. I was privileged to serve as senior advisor to U.S. Secretary of Education, Rod Page. I also had the honor of serving for eight years as Idaho State Superintendent of Public Instruction. During that time, I also served as president of the Council of Chief State School Officers. One thing I have learned in all these experiences is that educating children is not rocket science, it's more complicated. On my podcast, Swimming Upstream, we will visit with courageous leaders who challenge the prevailing tide and inspire all of us to swim against the current. Let's jump in. And welcome back to uh, another episode of Swimming Upstream with Tom Luna. And uh, we're in our in season two and um, had a very successful season one talking to state leaders across the country that are swimming upstream, you know, against the current to try to bring great programs and opportunities for um, students across the country. And today we're excited to be visiting with uh, the state superintendent of public instruction for the great state of Louisiana. We're visiting with uh, Dr. Kate Brumley. And Kate, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Tom, thanks. Thanks for having me. I look forward to the visit today. Yeah, you bet. Let, let's start by just uh, introducing you to the to folks. Um, you know, I've got a little bit of your bio, but talk to us about, you know, some of the things that you've done in the past that kind of prepared you for this uh, very, very important decision. And then share with us a little bit of the, the demographics of Louisiana, number of students and things like that. Yeah, so um, I'm roughly three years plus uh, in this particular role as state superintendent. Uh, our governor uh, shut down schools in early spring of, of 2020. Uh, almost immediately after that, uh, I was hired by our state board um, to be state superintendent of education. Uh, like everyone across the country, we have we faced uh, a global pandemic. Uh, in our state, we've also faced a number of named hurricanes, uh, which have uh, created an additional element uh, of, of something that we had to work through, um, but have really enjoyed uh, the work that we've done over the last three years. I uh, really think it's been the right work. Um, we've had some good successes, and, and clearly we know challenges and opportunities that, that lie ahead. Um, Louisiana is a, is a state that has been long challenged in terms of educational outcomes, uh, and, and we are working to continue to improve, flip the trajectory where it's where it's needed. Um, and I, I would also say that that we are doing our best to work with urgency um, every single day. Uh, yeah. Background, you know, I, I have a more traditional path. Um, served as superintendent of Louisiana's largest school system uh, immediately prior to taking this role just out of uh, Metro New Orleans. Um, prior to that, I served as a superintendent of a rural suburban system. So, you know, I have an understanding of, of, of systems at that small rural level, but also at that large urban uh, setting. And so I think all of those experiences, plus the principalship, classroom teaching, those types of roles, dad, um, have, yeah. have helped me uh, navigate uh, the last three years. And you were a coach. And I, I, I bring that up because there's a, there are a handful of state superintendents that you know, we're, we're coaches and that definitely pays dividends when you're building a team in the department and building that teamship that we all know is so critical if you want to get hard things done. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting topic that you bring up because leadership um, over the pandemic um, really has looked a little bit different in terms of working with your own employees than it did 5, 10, 15 years ago. 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I know, Tom, you can relate to this as, as uh, supervising people in the past. Uh, you were more or less in the driver's seat of, of what needed to happen, and you just had an expectation that those things happen. And, and what we uh, all face today with the challenges of the pandemic and various other challenges, we, I think we have to be much more accommodating uh, with people uh, and, and supportive in our leadership than maybe we had to be 5 or 10, yeah. 15 years ago. And so I think this has really challenged many of us uh, to think and reflect on our own leadership uh, to, to make sure that we can do the things that we need to do uh, to maintain um, cultivation of a positive work environment. Yeah, interesting. Let, let, I want to jump into uh, one thing that you brought up because everybody dealt with COVID, right? And um, pe people have heard me say this before. When I was in office, we dealt with the Great Recession, right? And and I thought that that was probably the most difficult thing that a state superintendent, when you're looking at just the financial reality of a state or even a country, uh, but COVID, I mean, <laughs> that that's on a completely new level. And you were one of a handful of chiefs that came in right at the beginning or or in the middle of it. But the other part that you brought up is hurricanes. So um, you you can talk talk a little bit about how you had to manage the hurricanes and, and the consequences of that at the same in the middle of a COVID environment. But also, I think people be interested is just. How does a school system starting at the local and up to the state prepare for an imminent hurricane of sometimes huge, huge magnitude? When I think about the pandemic um, and then school leadership during the pandemic, I think that there were probably times that one can think of over the course of our nation's history that have been really challenging. You know, and, and I won't bias what I think those instances were, but uh, there certainly have been times over the course of our history when schooling had to be a little more difficult. Uh, and I, I certainly feel like the pandemic was one of those times. Um, so I was like I said, I was hired almost immediately after the pandemic hit um, and uh, we we took off from there. But uh, once we once we got into our first school year and we were very aggressive around face to face instruction, and we had one of the largest percentages of our kids in um, daily face to face instruction in the country because we believed that we could successfully uh, mitigate the virus while also having school. And we did. Um, but uh, immediately that first year, we, we were faced with Hurricane Laura uh, that hit us. Um, and if you if you say a, a picture is worth a thousand words, like boots on the ground, it has to be worth 10,000 words because the, the level of devastation was just so immense uh, from Hurricane Laura. Um, and then 30 days after that, just essentially a month after that, uh, Hurricane Delta hit on basically the exact same pathway as wow. Hurricane Laura. So these people were were doing their best to to just begin a recovery process when they when they get blasted again. Um, and so we faced we faced six named hurricanes just over the last few years: Laura, Delta, Zeta, Ida, um, that have all had tremendous impact on our on our communities. And so you know, I was in the role less than a year when Laura hit. And I'm I'm looking around to existing uh, staff at the agency, and I'm and I'm asking where's the where's the playbook for how to deal with this, um, naively believing that there just would be one, um, and there wasn't. And uh, I said, well, that, you know, we've got to fix that. Um, and and before we could even think about it, the second hurricane hit, and then we're involved in the pandemic. And so uh, what we ended up doing is calling together a group of 
uh, a couple dozen experts from across the state that had previously dealt with storms, uh, legislators, uh, system leaders, school leaders, uh, architects, uh, various academics and other individuals. And we said, look, here, here's what we need to do as a state. Um, we need to build a playbook on how systems and schools can uh, think about being prepared, better prepared, uh, and how they can think about uh, quickly, as soon as possible, getting students uh, back into school after a storm. And so that that commission that we launched uh, and we led uh, met for over the course of the year. Uh, and we just recently released the state's first hurricane playbook. And it centers around four areas, preparation, mitigation, uh, response and recovery. And it and it takes uh, a school system through a period of time over the course of the year in the off season of the storm. Um, if there's a storm uh, leading up to that, that storm uh, hitting uh, immediately following the storm and, and then uh, recovery afterwards. And it, it gives systems the ability to uh, make that document their own and personalize that document within their own um, context. And so I was I was just surprised that, that didn't exist. And yeah. we're, we're thankful that we got to fill that void because when when people think of hurricanes in, in Louisiana, they think about maybe Hurricane Katrina, they think about yes. Rita. Yeah. Um, and and we know the impacts of those storms. We live that. Um, but that was 15 plus years ago. And so the individuals that were leading schools and systems at that point have since retired and, and the institutional knowledge that they had walked out the door with them. And so we we wanted to codify uh, this information, and, and thankfully we've done that. Yeah, that's that's impressive, and um, I'm sure it'll pay dividends. Um, one of the things uh, still connected to, to I guess hurricanes in Louisiana is school choice. At least charter schools kind of um, seem to really uh, accelerate as a result of Katrina down in the New Orleans area when they you know was so devastating. Uh, to facilities and, and families, and, and and so many families were dislocated around the country, even. But uh, you've continued to expand school choice, um, and so talk to us about um, some of the those efforts, um, and and you know a bit of an update on um, the whole Katrina. I think experience, Paul Pasternick probably wouldn't want to call it experiment, but you get it. I mean, that that was quite a uh, you know a turning up, if I believe what we would today call a whole district, school district, um, you know, into a charter district. But talk to us a little bit about that and how school choices continued to grow under your leadership um, and maybe some of the obstacles you've navigated to, to continue to uh, support those efforts. Yeah, I mean, after Hurricane Katrina, um, leadership within the state made the decision um, and um, schools in New Orleans uh, were essentially uh, chartered. And we have, uh, over the course of, 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 again, 15 years, uh, we have tried to continue supporting and expanding that work, not just in New Orleans, but, but throughout our state. Uh, I, I have a very clear stance on, on school choice, and I just think that school choice expands opportunities uh, for kids and families. Uh, I think it should just be a given uh, that, that families get to select the school that makes the most sense for them and their kid. Uh, and sometimes that's not even the same school if they have multiple children. So yeah. um, I just think it's important that we put families in the driver's seat around that and make sure that we're um, expanding those options for them. That can come in a number of different ways. Uh, I mean, we we have a, a long track record now uh, of, of this uh, charter work, which I think is is um, 
is 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 solid um, and still holds promise for for more work that we can do uh, as we think about launching more charters, which we are thinking through. Um, but I think you know we have a a rich history of non-public schools in our state. Catholic education, as an example, predates public education in Louisiana. And so we have a rich heritage of that that we try to support. Um, we we have a, a very strong and, and organized um, homeschool community. And so we try to think about um, how can we support their independence um, while making sure that we provide whatever it might need they might need from us. Uh, and then the other piece that I think is is this growing piece around the country is educational savings accounts. Um, we were in in our state. We we passed two separate ESA accounts last year. One for um, I believe one for students with exceptionalities. One for foster military children. Uh, unfortunately, they they both both faced vetoes on, on the governor's desk. Um, this particular legislative session, there was another universal ESA that that ran. It did not make it all the way through the process, and so we're we're still thinking about um, you know where are we. Uh, and and how can we continue to expand those choice options? And and frankly, I worry about the state of Louisiana if we if we don't further embrace those choice opportunities because one, families need it, they deserve it, they want it. Um, but but two, I, I think that it puts Louisiana in a competitive and economical disadvantage when thinking about the recruitment and retention of, of companies for our economy when we can't offer uh, employees, uh, children, the opportunity to, to attend the school of that family's choice. Well, I, I, I commend you for being a champion of, of school choice and uh, of having the position you have. It brings that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of clout and a lot of credibility to um to to um to the effort and and a lot of people will who maybe have been misled if you will on you know the consequences of expanding school choice uh more than likely to pay a, a little bit more attention knowing that you support that you know um i in my, i i shared this in my own personal experience we have six kids and they it all took a you know different paths in order to get them successfully through high school um, and I'm assuming that most parents are no different than we are. And so, you know, giving them choices. The other thing that I found, I'd be interested to see, hear your comments on this, but when you let a parent choose, they tend to want to make sure that their choice is very successful, right? They'll lean in a little bit more, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, tell me how, how, yeah, I mean, I, I can relate, I can relate to what you're saying too, because, you know, I, I have more than one personal uh, child. And, um, you know, you think, man, the, these kids were raised in the same home with the same parents, had the yes. same experiences. How can they be so different? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's cool. I mean, it, it's a cool thing. It, 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 it's it's it adds flavor to, to life, um, but they have different needs. And, 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 and so I just think we have to um, respect that. And the other part is, look, I, I I am a graduate of a public school. Yeah. Um. I I love our public schools. So we we have some public schools that are that are doing great work. Our traditional publics and our public charters. Um. This is this is not a, an assault on public education by simply uh, allowing families the opportunity to to, to pick other options. Yeah. Um, and I, I've had this conversation so many times that I think so many of our families feel comfortable with their local school. They know the teachers. Yeah. That's a choice. The leaders. They're 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 involved in in that community and and they're making that choice yeah. to be there. Yeah. And I think that that's the important part that we have to honor. 
one of the things that you've done that I always put in the category of school choice is you've given high school kids a lot of options on how to pursue things through their high school career. Um, uh, credentials for uh, tro- we, something called trades, even college credits, and with even the opportunity to graduate, I believe, with an associate's degree. You know, I, I always put those things in the category of choice, right? Because rather than just sitting there and getting the same diploma with the same classes that everybody else took. So talk talks about those programs. I, I think you've highlighted that as one of the things that you uh, you guys have successfully rolled out. And talk to us a bit about that. I mean, I think the the redesign of the high school experience is is not just an opportunity, but an obligation for us as a country. And this is this is really exciting work. Um, and and I also think like with just a, a few sound policy decisions, this stuff can happen. Um, and, and and the more that we can, again, this is about uh, about parents. It's also about the student and their future, but giving them opportunities uh, during that high school experience to. Uh, potentially, um, instead of going to high school every day, go to an apprenticeship, you know, go go to the hospital and learn to be a, a, an apprentice for, for nursing. Um, go to um, uh, an institution that does um, uh, HVAC apprenticeships and, and spend their time there. Um, if, if you enjoy doing those things, do them. Uh, if you want to pursue a college career, let's make sure that you have opportunities through AP, dual enrollment, IB, those types of opportunities for kids. And I think we can do all of this, but we have to think about how do we staff our schools? How do we spend our money? How do we develop our partnerships? And how do we inform our families and our kids uh, about these options? This is really exciting. Um, and, and yeah, we even passed legislation here in our state that that mandates a family's ability to move um, schools um, if the high school doesn't have uh, the the program that the child would like to participate in. And yeah. so, um, again, yeah, I, I agree. It is, it is a choice option, but we have we have so much opportunity here to really, um, really better prepare our students for what's next um, in their lives. And we have an opportunity to help our economies. Uh, and I don't think we can miss it. Um, and, and so we have to, we have to make the most of that. And I, and I think it's really, really exciting work. Yeah, that is exciting. And uh, congratulations on that. And, you know, and, and uh, creating those opportunities and setting, setting an example. Um, we, I want to shift gears a bit here. We know that when, once a child enters the school, that the most important factor in their academic success is the quality of the cl- teacher in the classroom, right? Uh, school choices is important. Curriculum is important. The amount of money we spend per child is important. Class size is important. But nothing is more important than the quality of the teacher in the classroom. And you all have done some uh, forward thinking things to kind of elevate the profession of teaching. And uh, so, you know, I, I suspect that uh, Louisiana is dealing with a teacher shortage like others are. And in rural America, that's not news, right? I mean, teacher shortages have been part of this. And, and we've seen teacher shortage coming for the last 10 years. COVID kind of, you know, um, increased the pace. But talk to us about some of the things you've done to help elevate the uh, profession of teaching. Well, I, I agree. Um, you know, I, I say outside of the parent or guardian, there's really nothing more important. Um, we talk about even, um, you know, as as federal funding from the pandemic runs away and, and systems think about how to manage that, they're, they're going to have to prioritize teacher pay, period, because 
none of these other things matter un unless the, the child has access to a teacher. Um, we, we have done a good job of cutting those vacancies across our state with, I think, some smart policy, but we have a long way to go. Um, you know, I, I um, think about this, too, from a standpoint of it's it's great if someone goes to college, they graduate college, they hire on at a school and they teach there for 30 years. That's great. But but that's becoming less and, yeah. and, and yeah. less common. And yeah. so we have we have a lot of um, shoots out of the classroom. Think of that game shoots and ladders, as one staff uh, member told me. We have a lot of shoots out of the classroom. We don't have enough ladders into the classroom. Yeah. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is is think about things like apprenticeships into the classroom, uh, individuals with associates degrees. How can we get them clinical experience into the classroom? Uh, other other careers and and mid career changers. How can we pull them into the classroom? And and all the while appreciating those people who have always known that they wanted to be a teacher and they would they would they would teach their you know Barbie dolls or little soldiers as first graders in, in their house. <laughs> um, so we we want all of that, um, but we have to create more ladders to the classroom. And the other thing I think we have to do here from a retention standpoint is um, uh, we we have to make sure our teachers have an environment where they can teach free of disruption. Um, free from behaviors that that prevent them from teaching, uh, free from excessive bureaucracy and, and, and burdensome paperwork. Uh, and then we have to compensate them like uh, professionals. And that's that's why I'm really thankful that this year our state legislature um, approved our recommendation to put money in the state budget for differentiated pay. So we're able to tell superintendents and local systems to go be a CEO, you know, be a superintendent, a CEO. And, and take a market responsive approach with your pool of this money and pay for critical shortage, pay for high need schools, pay for teacher leadership for individuals who want to mentor other teachers and, and pay for performance to, to keep your high flyers in your buildings. And so we're, we're hopeful that, that all of these things uh, come together uh, to ensure that we have uh, teachers for, for kids. You know, what's exciting, uh, Cade, is that, um, you know, what I what I found interesting is most people don't know how the majority of teachers across the country are compensated, right? It's based on how many years you've taught and the amount of education you have. So if, if I'm the best teacher in a district and I've taught eight years and have a master's degree, this is primarily what I make. If I'm the most struggling teacher in the district, I've taught eight years and have a master's degree, we both end up in the same place on the grid and we make the same amount of money. Mo most people agree that teachers aren't paid enough, but they don't know how you know, it traditionally plays out. So you've been able to break that mold. That is not easy. I, I suspect you still have the grid, but now you've given, uh, like you said, superintendents the ability to actually be a CEO and make the kinds of decisions that CEOs make to build a great team. And um, so th this is going to roll out this first year. Yeah, so we're, yeah, our foot, our yeah. foot goes into the stream for the first time this year. We're, we're yeah. excited about it. You know, those, those step and ladder type approaches to teacher pay, they, they, their grids, like you call them, they, they still exist. Yeah. Um, I think there was a point in our country's history when they needed to exist because yeah. we had to prevent discrimination or solve for various levels of discrimination um, to ensure that people were paid appropriately. Um, but, but now I really think that we, we have to make sure that our teachers have a, uh, a strong base pay, whatever that might be, right. um, and, and then think about what does the market tell us about this person? What what does the market tell us about their performance? What does it tell us about the content that they hold and 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 the demand versus the supply? 
Um, what does the market tell us about um, schools where we struggle more to, to staff? And, and then, so how can systems then utilize the dollars that they have? And thankfully, we're able to provide some additional dollars there this year. Um, but to really, um, in a laser-like approach, try to solve for these issues. And yeah. that's uncomfortable for a lot of su superintendents. Yeah. Um, it, it's uncomfortable for a lot of superintendents when I start talking about um, apprenticeships or people with associate's degrees and, and cultivating their ability to teach. Alternate routes, right? Yeah, alternative route. That's scary for people. Yeah. But what what's the option? You know, the 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 other options that we facing uh, are, are facing aren't aren't working because we just don't have the supply. And yeah. so we we can utilize this as a moment to innovate um, and to rethink schools. Um, and I think that's what we should be doing. Yeah. Excellent. I, I love it. Um, so we've talked about the, the how important teachers are, you know, high um, a quality teacher in every classroom. Um, and, and that that's just going to be continual effort, right? Continual effort. Um, when we talk about what happens in the classroom, um, literacy, if it's, if it's not number one, then, you know, I don't know why it wouldn't be number one in somebody's view, uh, for any number of reasons. Um, and especially what happens in the earliest grades when it comes to literacy. Uh, you, you've, you've done some efforts there with a focus on science of reading. And we see more and more um, districts and states focusing on science of reading. So talk to us about your efforts also when it comes to literacy and those earlier, those earliest grades. Yeah. So I think, I think we're part of a, a, a wave of states that are really trying to tackle this um, as a, as a key um, endeavor. Um, over the last three years, we, we've probably passed a, a dozen uh, bills um, in our legislature and, and corresponding policy changes with our state board um, to really focus on the science of reading. And, and what we see in our classrooms right now, we see more energy around reading than, than I remember ever, ever seeing. Um, and for us, we're, we're seeing some, some early results. You know, on, on NAEP, we led the country. We were number one in the country for, for fourth grade reading growth. Our, wow. our fourth graders are more proficient readers after the pandemic than before the pandemic. Um, and I, I believe, you know, that's a result of a few things, the aggressive return to school, summer um, tutoring, but also this reading revival that, that we've tried to build in our state that, that goes back to this phonics-based approach uh, of teaching kids how to read. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, you mentioned something a number of times, whether it was <clears throat> school choice, um, elevating the teaching profession, you mentioned it talking about literacy, and that is that the legislature passed bills. That is not an easy process, right? And you talk about swimming upstream. And um, so I guess talk to us about your, your thoughts on your role when it comes to the legislature. And uh, if people don't understand, and most, if not all educators do, but a lot of people don't understand um, that aren't involved day to day in education, just the just the important role that the legislature plays. So talk to us about, you know, your role in helping, I guess, navigate these pieces of legislation that have successfully passed. I mean, I, mean, I work with a number of policy um, policy players every day from, from our state board of education that, that, that 
approves policy uh, to our state legislature that uh, approves policy. And, and there are so many things that um, if you if you absolutely need it to be done, uh, it has to be an instrument of the law. Um, and so you you have to make sure that the legislature is really informed about uh, the needs within your state, uh, what you believe and deem to be the most important priorities, uh, and how you how you plan to um, get us all where we need to be. Um, I, I'm really thankful for our legislature. I, I think we we have um, been able to work well with our legislature on items over the last three years around return to school. Uh, around literacy, we're beginning some work around mathematics, um, some expanded expansion of choice options. And so our, our legislature has really worked uh, hand in hand with us, thankfully, uh, over the last uh, few years to, to do to do these things. Yeah. Um, and, and, and frankly, if 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 you're going to do big and bold things in this in this role and Tom, you know this, you, you've got to have policy to do it because it's it's one of it's one of the levers that we hold in this role. Yeah. We have the law. We have some degree around finance. Uh, we have relationships. Yeah. Um, and we have to try to figure out how to pull the, the the appropriate levers at the right time to do the right work. Yeah, I, I think that's so critical. You talked about those relationships. Um, you know, you can't cast one vote. You can't sign one bill, right? Yeah. So as a state superintendent, you have a vision, you have the leadership skills to get things done. But like you said, the law is going to determine what you can and can't do. And so working to uh, influence that policy and those laws takes relationship, takes a lot of trust. And uh, uh, I picked up on that as you shared any number of <clears throat> really impressive things that have happened in Louisiana. So, um, Cade, um, Thank you, uh, Dr. Kate Brumley, for being our guest on um, Swimming Upstream and uh, appreciate having you. Um, Going to ask you the same question we ask every uh, guest as we wrap this up, but share with us one fact or piece of trivia that is unique to Louisiana that most people wouldn't know. Yeah, I mean... I love the great state of Louisiana. I'm a native of this state. Uh, I want nothing more than to to see it uh, succeed and prosper. And I think we're making good progress educationally. National rankings tell us we are, uh, but we have a long way to go. Um, you know, whenever I think about that question, the first thing that comes to mind, it may be a little bit boring and people may know, but most places have counties that, that separate their government. Uh, Louisiana has parishes. Um, and it really it, it's that's that's been in existence for for a very long time. Uh, but that's how we're set up. So we we don't have county seats. We have parish seats. We don't have county school systems. We have parish school systems. So not to put you on the spot, but you you're a lifelong Louisiana. And so the people in the Mountain West, that that is unique. So I've heard this, but I don't understand the history behind it because a parish to me sounds more like a, a religious boundary, you know, yeah. or, or geographical area. Well, and that's the that's the background. I mean, that's that's where this that's the context. Um, and if you recall earlier, I, I indicated that Catholic education predates yeah. public education in Louisiana. Um, and, and that's where this essentially comes from as well. And so our counties aren't counties, our counties are parishes or, or rather or rather your counties are parishes and, or however you want to say it, but we don't have, <laughs> yeah, counties, we have yet parishes. Yeah. Well, that's, that is fascinating. I think people will enjoy learning that and uh, appreciate you sharing that. Um, again, thanks for being on swimming upstream. 
uh, uh, Cade, and uh, good luck with all the work there in Louisiana. And look forward to catching up with you and um, in the future and uh, learning more about the great things going on in, in the state of Louisiana. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. And remember, our children may only be 22% of our population, but they represent 100% of our future. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. Swimming Upstream is part of the Stratagos Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of our shows, visit our website, stratagosgroup.com.